thank you for having me as your preacher here today as we open together one of the Apostle Paul's prison epistles, his letter to the church at Philippi. So last week we ended with Paul's prayer of exhortation and encouragement for the Philippian church. This prayer was born from the sincere joy and affection of separated friends longing to see each other again. And more so, it was a prayer born from the joy and affection that Paul had for Christ. As in Christ, these Philippians were just like him. They too were born of the Spirit. They too had been made new and were born into the living hope of Christ. They were his partners in the gospel. And like him, they had received the privilege of being chosen by Jesus, not only to believe, but also to suffer for the sake of the glory of his great name. Now, for many of us, this might be a hard pill to swallow, but I'm sure Terry will address this more fully in the coming weeks. But for now, in light of this, Paul reminds the church that it's Jesus who is powerfully at work among them. From the first day until now, that he who began a good work in them remains faithfully at work in and through them until his work among them is complete. The promises ahead of this church are great in glory, yet these promises are hidden under the suffering and weakness of ordinary lives. What they one day will become is not yet apparent. It's only hinted at now and displayed in love, faith, hope, and joy, and manifested through mutual affection, knowledge, and discernment. But this is but the greenery of the seedling. The full glory of the flowering of this church is yet to be revealed and has been reserved for the day of the revelation of the glory of Christ. For now, Christ is working in them slowly, steadily, and humbly. And Paul prays for their discerning love, that they would know that the Lord Jesus had chosen them as a people for himself and had plucked them from the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. They were a church planted under the thumb of powerful oppression, Yet Paul did not pray for the transformation of the Roman society from which the church had been gathered. He did not pray for the church to gather political power and influence to herself, but prayed for the ongoing transformation of a weak and marginalized people that they would bear the image of Christ. That the individual Christians of that church, both great and small, slave, woman, and free, that their love would abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight and that they would be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So they've received a twofold call. It recognizes at once that the Philippian church, they're not to be escapists. For Christ did not come to solve all their problems or change their situation in this life. They had been called in Christ to live and serve in the here and now embedded in the middle of a perverse and wicked society, in an age of privation, disease, and cruelty. This people lived under the thumb of a variety of ungodly oppressors and oppressions, yet they had already been liberated from the greatest oppressor of them all, sin and death. And in this, they rejoiced. Yet Paul prays that in the middle of this here and now call, that this church would live fully, from the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus, looking to the day of his coming with hope, abounding in love, fruitfully growing in all knowledge and participation in the deep mysteries of the Christ who was given for them. 
These Christians were called to discern the eternal from the temporal, that which is enduring from that which is passing away, and to lay hold of that which should lay hold of them. And now as we look to the day of Christ, we see our future hope. But not only are Christians called not to be escapists, for we are called to serve in this age. Yet as discerning Christians in this age, we do not seek the transform, transformation of this age for our salvation. We do not look to a Christianized political structure or system as goals in themselves. This is a false hope, a false gospel. But while living in this age, we as Christians are to be firmly rooted in the hope of the age to come. The more firmly rooted we are in this hope, almost ironically, the more filled we shall be with the fruit of righteousness that comes from that age. The more transformation we might begin to see in the world around us to the glory and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that as an opening for today, please join with me in a word of prayer as we open God's word this day. Father, we thank you for the new birth into the living of hope of Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. We thank you for the transformation that comes through our encounter with your word and your spirit. We pray, Lord, this day that you would speak afresh to your people through these precious words from the Paul to his friends at the church at Philippi. Amen. Now, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, as we read how Paul seeks to both comfort the church and remind the Philippian church of how this teaching applies to them personally, both to him as an apostle and to the church and to their shared mission. I'll be reading from the NIV. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of hope, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly inspect, expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So this is the word of the Lord, and may he bless our hearing of it this day. 
And so, as Craig reminded us last week, it's from out of the people of Philippi that God gathered to himself the very first converts to Christ amongst all the people in Europe. And in return for the hospitality of God, the people of Philippi extended hospitality to Paul and his companions from the very first, supporting him at every turn in his missionary journeys, and had been providing for him while he was awaiting trial before Caesar in Rome. So at this time, Paul is writing from Rome, under guard, likely in a house that he is renting. He does not have liberty of movement, but his needs can be supplied by friends and family, as was the custom. It's helpful to note that this letter was written about 12 years after Paul had first met the Philippian people. It's also helpful to note that this was not the first time Paul had been in prison. In fact, he had been severely beaten and imprisoned while in Philippi those 12 years prior but was miraculously delivered from his chains. At night, while singing and praying with Silas in their cell, there was an earthquake, and the cells were opened, and the fetters of the prisoners fell to the ground. But even on that night, Paul did not flee the prison alone. He waited for his jailer to arrive, then set the jailer free from his prison of sin and death through the message of the gospel. So what had happened back in Philippi had served to advance the cause of the gospel. Accordingly, Paul reminds the church here that they serve a God who is bigger than Paul's circumstances and is sovereign over them, and that God was working his will in and through Paul's trials, which were for God's good purpose and for the advancement of the gospel. We might ask Paul what he means by advancement. From our perspective, it would seem that it was something about the spread and flourishing of faith in Christ. But the Greek term for advancement is prokope. Not surprisingly, it has some military roots. It has its origins in describing the intentional cutting down of brush or forests that impede the progress of a strategic military advance. And if we peek forward to chapter 2, Paul refers to his friend Epaphroditus not only as a brother in Christ, but also in military terms, as his fellow soldier. In this, there's a militant aspect to the gospel as it goes forth to conquer. So when Paul tells his brothers and sisters in Philippi in verse 12 that what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel, the gospel is gaining ground. Keep in mind that the gospel advances as it cuts a swath through the brush that hinders it. The gospel uses Paul's adversity as a scythe, a scythe that cuts through grass. So Paul's adversity has cut a swath for the gospel through the hardened hearts of his captors. Through the injustice of Paul's adversity, the gospel has made its appeal and has penetrated into the beating heart of Caesar's own household. Well, how so? Well, if we look at verse 13, we can see that it's because Paul's been imprisoned. And we know from Acts chapter 16 that Paul is filled with a hope that goes beyond any prison and that he's just the kind of Christian to sing and pray aloud while, ch- while chained. And clearly here, he gives the reason for his hope to his captors. Paul hopes for release from this captivity, but more from release from any physical bonds, he seeks the release from spiritual captivity and a body of decay. The overflow of his hope in Christ manifests in contentment now, safe in the knowledge that it's been granted to him to suffer for Christ. 
this contentment and hope manifest in joy. How come? Well, for Paul, Christian suffering is not wrath or punishment. It's not the neglect or the forgetfulness of, forgetfulness of God. But in Christ, it is the kind purpose of God and a pledge of future glory. It's as Paul writes in Romans 8.17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So while imprisoned at Philippi, Paul had ironically freed his jailers through the gospel. Now while imprisoned at Rome, he does the same again as he shares with those who guard him a hope which goes beyond any prison built by human hands. Verse 13 talks about the whole palace guard, but we should be aware that we're referring to something a bit more distinct. We're talking about the praetorian. We can read verse 13 like this. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole Pretoria that to everyone else I'm, that, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So there is a debate in the Greek if the term Pretoria refers specifically to the elite Praetorian guards of Rome or to the complex, the Castra Pretoria, in which they encamped and were organized in the northeast suburbs of the city. Regardless, it was members of this elite force who watched Paul an elite group of soldiers charged with securing Rome and the person of the emperor and the imperial family. They were paid three times what an ordinary soldier was paid. They had unique armor, shields, and standards, to, and to ensure absolute loyalty, the members of the guard could only be of Italian origin. It was illegal for any other general or commander to bring troops into the city. These praetorians answered to Caesar alone. Yet the gospel was advancing, through Paul's suffering and cutting into the ranks of this ferocious army and was taking captives from the very household of Caesar himself. While the Praetorians were well-equipped to do battle against conventional foes, it seems they were ill-equipped for the battle against the Spirit. Now, we should note that the gospel will also advance through our own suffering, especially as the prayer of the apostle takes hold of us, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, and that we would be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, we Christians are not escapists. Paul says that it is clear, unmistakable while he was in chains, not for any crime or misdeed, but purely for the hope of glory. Now, the gospel was advancing in other battlefields as well. It says in verse 14 that because of Paul's chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it's an interesting phenomenon of human beings that we look to the actions of others for direction and to our leaders for a path to follow. We're not just comfortable just going it alone. On the battlefield, troops experiencing opposition and setbacks can grow fearful and draw back and need to be rallied into the fray once more. Relatedly, Billy Graham once declared that courage is contagious, and when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. So why should the confidence of the local Roman church in Paul's attendance be growing through Paul's imprisonment? Well, for one, he wasn't dead yet. Uh, he might be confined and under guard, but had free access to friends and supplies. He could receive guests and send letters. 
And it's evident as we read in chapter 4 that there were now Christian believers in Caesar's own household. The gospel was advancing through the praetorium and into the heart of Roman power. Even if imprisoned and stripped of his liberty, freedom in Christ abounded. And the hope of glory could never be stripped away, but only intensified. As we move into verse 15, it's evident that of these newly emboldened, we have two groups of ministers, some who preach out of selfish ambition and others who preach from goodwill. What a silly thing. How does one preach out of selfish ambition? Um, I don't really know, but if we look at these words, we might see them better represented as envy and rivalry. Envy is a fairly straightforward idea, a person greedily seeking a position of another. But the idea behind rivalry is to be factious. And I'm not talking about a fact-oriented sermon here, but preaching that divides into parties or factions. It's a preaching that seeks to draw disciples after the preacher and not after Christ. Now, interestingly, we learn here that this factiousness isn't so much a matter of theological distinction or doctrinal emphasis. As Paul says in verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. So preaching can be accurate and edifying. The Spirit can bless it, for Christ is in it. So the issue is not necessarily the matter of delivery, topic, or emphasis, but it's a matter of the life of the whole preacher. Does the preacher need to be at the center of all things? Does he seek out opportunities for self-promotion? Do they fret and chafe when others preach? Must the words be theirs alone? Do they rejoice when the word is proclaimed helpfully by others? As for the people, are they upset if their favorite pastor isn't preaching? Do we tune in, tune out, or just change the channel? Do we listen only to the pastor we like, or do we listen to the word of Christ for us, which comes through them? Are we following personalities, or are we following Christ? Unfortunately, such factions and factiousness have often plagued the church and has resulted in many schisms. These are not theological distinctions or differences so much as they are differences of persons. As Paul warned the Corinthian church to guard against factions and the tendency to say, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Peter, or I am of Christ, Paul asks the church rhetorically, is Christ divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Who are Paul and Apollos and Peter anyway, but slaves of Christ? Who are they to draw disciples after themselves? They're to teach others to follow them, yes, but only insofar as they follow Christ. So this tendency is both the fault of the preacher and of the hearer. But when considering these two kinds, Paul admits that one group seeks to stir up trouble, but that there's not much that he can do. He needs someone to cover for him, as it says in verse 16. The latter who preach Christ do so from love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So these sincere people minister to the people of God as Paul has been confined for the defense of the gospel. Now defense, apologia, is another interesting Greek word from which we get our words apology or apologize. In the Christian world, apologetics. Apologia is a Greek word meaning from intelligent reasoning. It's a thoughtful response to an issue of controversy, but it's especially a technical term in a legal context for a court proceeding. 
any defendant in a court needed to bring a defense, an apologia. Of course, Paul here is awaiting trial, but notice he doesn't consider himself to be on trial. He's not making an apologia for himself, but is defending the gospel for which he is on trial. Paul has done nothing wrong. The five years prior, but five years prior, he was taken into protective custody by the Roman authorities in Jerusalem after a mob of his Jewish countrymen sought to kill him as they accused him of desecrating the temple. And if you want to see examples of Paul's apologia for the gospel, just check out Acts chapters 21 to 26, where on five occasions, Acts records Paul's defense, once before his fellow Jews, once before the Sanhedrin, twice before Roman governors, and once before a Jewish king. Since Paul had now been imprisoned for five years, he is looking forward to presenting the gospel to Emperor Nero. Now, we don't know it from this letter, but ultimately Paul and the gospel were declared not guilty by the emperor. And Paul was released much to the joy of churches everywhere. But in the meantime, what can Paul look forward to? Well, other than leaving the body to be with the Lord, Paul rejoiced in the hidden glory of Christ. The marks of Christ on his body. The Christ in his captivity. The Christ in the boldness of the church and in the advancement of the gospel. The Christ in the prayers of his friends. And Christ in the life of the Spirit. And because of all of this, Paul rejoices, as he says in verse 18, and will continue to rejoice. Well, how come? Well, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So it's important to understand that Paul may or may not be talking about physical deliverance from his chains. I believe that even though he has this in view, as we can see from verses 24 and 26. There's still uncertainty, as we can see in verses 20 and 21. In effect, Paul is asking, will I live on in the body or will I be executed? Regardless, the word used here for deliverance is sozo, which can mean salvation depending on the context. So in effect, what I believe Paul is saying is whatever has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. And in this, Paul rejoices. So at this point, we should probably examine the idea of joy and what exactly a rejoice is. I've always found rejoice to be a strange word, like what exactly is a joyce and how do I joyce it again? But the reality is, is that to rejoice is to relive or re-celebrate a joyous reality or event. Some of us have a hard time knowing what to do with joy. But as a start, we can think of Christmas or of a birthday, a joy we relive in the present as we look to the past. But for Paul and for all Christians, rejoicing doesn't only look backwards to what has been done for us in Christ, but also around to what Christ is doing now, and especially, as we will see, to what Christ has yet to do. The words, the words joy and rejoice all flow from the same Greek root, the word that we use for grace. Charis. Very often we understand grace in a technical sense, the undeserved favor of God. Now, this is true, but more fully, the word gives the idea of the pleasure and, and favor of a great Lord for one of his servants. Grace, then, is more like the gift of the Lord's goodwill and affection. 
As the scripture says in Numbers chapter 6, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And it is the radiant face of the pleasure and affection of God that had turned to shine upon Paul. When Paul was Saul and a fire-breathing enemy of God on the Damascus road, yet God turned to Saul and smiled upon him. The radiance of this encounter changed Saul into Paul and transformed an enemy into a friend. And Paul never got over this baffling turn of events. And so when Paul is rejoicing in Christ, in many ways he is actually re-gracing in Christ. And under the gift of grace, this outpouring of the good pleasure and affections of God, it is natural for God's chosen servant to celebrate and re-experience grace as joy and thanksgiving. So when Paul is thinking and speaking about rejoicing, these feelings are directly connected to the initial grace of God for Saul in his conversion on the road to Damascus, but as well as the present grace of God's provision for him in his cell but especially the future grace of God's kind intentions for Paul in glory. This is important. For Paul, in all his circumstances, free or imprisoned, well-supplied or hungry, his current situations are the formation of Christ in him, the hope of glory. No matter how good fellowship is here and now with his friends in Philippi, friendship in glory will be immeasurably better. But sweet fellowship now actually forms the fellowship of Christ in him. Similarly, in Paul's sufferings, he becomes like Christ, totally dedicated to the upward call of God. But as earthly fellowship is like an appetizer before a great feast, suffering is more like the hard labor ahead of a well-deserved rest. In whatever his circumstances, there was only ever the great pleasure and favor of God at work. He who is working everything in Paul's life according to God's own purpose and kind intentions for Paul. Kind intentions which bring Paul into conformity to the image of Christ. Firstly, in the fellowship of his sufferings. And secondly, that Paul would be fitted to share in the image of Christ's glory. So when Paul is speaking about rejoicing, it's helpful for us to think back to his letter to the Romans, especially Romans 8.28, where Paul declares that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul is declaring that his suffering and imprisonment these last five years, as unjust as it is, is according to the good purposes and kind intentions of God in his call on Paul's life. So deliverance from the emperor is one thing, but deliverance from a body of sin and death is quite another. Paul's life is a lesson for us, as are his words. Suffering for Christ is not the exclusive possession of certain saints and exalted missionaries. For Christians, our everyday suffering is suffered in union with Christ. That is, suffering in Christ is suffering for Christ. And in God's economy, is designed both to serve the advancement of the gospel and our own salvation. But as Christians, in our trials and suffering now, be it the struggle against sin, difficult circumstances, sickness, or even death, it's as we suffer that we are saved. And through our trials and sufferings, we're reminded of the grace of God in our salvation and the grace of God in conforming us into the image of his Son 
for which we are being saved. We follow a path which Christ has laid out for us. As Paul declares in Romans 8.29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There's to be a family similarity between Jesus and his brothers and sisters. This pattern of Christ is certainly a pattern of undisputed victory and glory. But before we enter into the glory, we must pass through the shame of the cross. The pattern of Christ involves weakness, suffering, humble obedience, and hope. In light of the suffering Paul is enduring and the threats before him, Paul declares his hope in verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a magnificent passage. It captures the pattern of how Christ will be manifested in all who are called according to his name. The eager expectation and hope that Paul talks about here is not mere wishful thinking. It is a striving after a sure thing. The salvation that he is sure of from verse 19. So Paul here is more like someone straining forward to receive a prize offered to him. But I find the NIV to be a little weak in verse 20, as if Paul was somehow unsure. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no, be, no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. It reads a bit like Paul's not sure, but I really don't think that's the sense of the text. I think it should be a bit more like this. According to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. The idea is like this. Paul's eager expectation is salvation, union with Christ, both now in his captivity and in future glory. His hope and trust is that Christ is not only able, but is faithful to complete the work that he has started in Paul. So Paul here looks forward to the completion, the exaltation of Christ in him, whether by life or by death. Paul will not be put to shame by anything, especially not by his trust in Christ. As he says in Romans 1.16, I will not be put to shame by the gospel. So it's according to his eager expectation and hope of salvation that Paul can talk about the future in such an offhand way. If I live, fruitful service. If I die, glorious reward. But it's really the same for all who believe. We need to see the grace of God not as a technical doctrine, but as the radiance of God's good pleasure and affection shining upon us. It involves his choice of us, his work in and through us, and ultimately the completion of his work when our lowly bodies are transformed into conformity with the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Paul's joy is rooted in the pleasure of a God who definitely wills to bring these things to come to pass. So with this in mind, with his mind so fixed on glory, we can appreciate his dilemma. What shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul engages in a bit of speculative reasoning. Uh, he's not speculating about his future state, about whether or not he will be faithful to his calling. 
he's confident he will not be put to shame by the gospel. Paul is also confident that should, should Nero declare the gospel not guilty and Paul remain in the body, there will be fruitful labor for him until God's work in and through him is complete. But he is speculating about the will and providence of God. How exactly will these things work out? What is in store for me tomorrow? Well, who can know? It was not even granted to Paul the vision to see what tomorrow holds. But he had been granted the wisdom to know that glory will look after itself. For the time being, grace was his in abundance for the needs of the day. Many of us here can possibly relate to the desire of wanting to depart and to be with the Lord. But how many see Christ in and through our current struggles? We desire glory and victory now, or we desire to depart now. But who among us desires a cross? Let us, like Paul, remind ourselves that while we live in the body, to live is Christ, and that this Christ is a cruciform God. Like Plato through a mold, we are conformed into the image of Christ. First in weakness, before we take hold of his future glory and strength. For those of us here who have yet to conceive of such a hope or desire, may you allow the groaning of your body and of your spirit to speak and to follow the invitation of the Holy Spirit to behold the promises of the glory in Christ for you through the eye of faith. Promises which are for you and not against you. Can you ask God to kindle the desire for the hope of glory within you and join the apostle in his confidence? Paul lets on that he has a sense the Lord is not yet done with him, though. That there's more that the Lord wants to accomplish. He says, convinced of this, I know I'll remain, and I'll continue with you all for your progress in joining the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is convinced by his own reasoning about what is most helpful for the church. He has a sense that God will have him remain in the body to continue with the Philippians. The word continue is parameno. It means to bring close alongside. It has a sense of intimacy and care, which again reflects the emotions and connections that Paul has with this church. But this close alongside relationship is for a reason. It's for their progress and joy in the faith. Now, it might not be apparent again here, but we have two more familiar words. The term progress, once again, is prokope, or advancement. The same term Paul first used to describe the purpose of his chains, the advancement of the gospel. And joy, once again, is kara, the joyous response to grace. The smile offered to God in return for the smile of God shining upon them in Christ. It seems that the advancement in the faith cannot be achieved apart from joy. But which is in the driver's seat? Do we advance into joy or do we joyously advance? Well, quite possibly it's both and, not either or. Just as there are different seasons and circumstances in Paul's experience, at times joy leads, at times it follows. So too it is with us. Regardless, let us be firmly convinced where the joy is leading or following that the same grace with which God first smiled upon us and gave to us the gift of faith has not departed from us, but rather sustains us in the hour of our need. For the Christ in our conversion is the Christ of our crucifixion and the Christ of our resurrection. 
After all, in baptism, we have died with him when we were buried. Yet through baptism, we've been raised to the newness of life. So we can say with the apostle, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And that the life we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. And so we close this section of scripture today anticipating Paul's release and his restoration to the Philippian church for their advancement and joy in the faith. And that this renewed close alongsidedness with them would give them cause to boast in Christ. This boasting is not so much like bragging about how God released Paul from the clutches of Rome, but it's more about the overflowing of their joy to testify about the greatness of a God who smiles upon his enemies to make them into his friends. So despite our circumstances, can we witness the ministry of the Spirit of Christ who draws alongside us this day for our encouragement through Paul's words? Can we receive the ministry for our own advancement and joy in the faith? Let us discern the shape of the cross in our current experiences so that we can look forward to the shape of Christ in future glory. We live ordinary lives in the captivity of this age, but today the gospel is loosed and we are being fitted and prepared for the advancement of it. May the joy of the Lord's favor and the hope of glory give us courage and supply the overflow of our hearts to the world. Now, please join with me in a word of prayer. And Lord, this we pray. We thank you for your grace, for the radiance of your smile upon us, which we turn back to you in the overflow of our praise. Lord, through our joy and affections, though our joy and affections ebb and flow, we are confident of this very thing, that you who began a work in us will complete it by the day of Christ. May it be from that your grace our love will overflow more and more in the real knowledge and discernment that we may discover all things which are excellent and enduring. Keep us blameless and sincere for the day of Christ and fill us with the fruit of the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ from your glory and praise. Amen.